When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers. Back with me as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And we're delighted to be joined by an extra special guest, James Heal. He is the diary editor of The Spectator and author of Out of the Blue. Thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. So it's been another rollercoaster week in British politics. Rishi Sunak uh, is our new prime minister. Boris Johnson tried for the job and, and pulled out in the end. Uh, Penny Morden didn't quite make it to enough support. Uh, we've got a new cabinet. I mean, James, what's your impression of this kind of crazy week? It's just madness, isn't it? Um, look, the Liz Truss experiment in, ended rather early, I think, mm. than we all thought. And in many ways, the dynamics of the, the contest, you want to call it that, uh, contested coronation over the weekend, yeah. uh, were a reaction to that. And that's why everything that Rishi Sunak does is meant to be seen as a very much a contrast to that. Um, because obviously it went so disastrously wrong. And now Rishi Sunak has taken over. Um, some of his more... Um, you know, triumphant supporters would say, you know, completely vindicated. I think Sunak himself was a more modest man than that. But, you know, really, I think his arguments over the summer are now seen to have a much more better hearing within the party, although yeah. it is very still divided. Tom, the the sense seems to be, at least coming from the media, that the adults are mm. now back in the room, yeah, the grown-ups, <laughs> the sensibles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. And that's one of the things that... Um, makes your stomach turn a little bit. As far as, I mean, Rishi Sunak is quite inoffensive character. Mm. So it's hard to be angry at him. It's like being angry at a meringue or something. It just doesn't really work. <laughs> um, and his whole pitch, which makes sense to the Tory party at this point, is that we need to, steady as she goes, we need to just, uh, whatever we can do to kind of climb out of the hole that has been dug for us in the last couple of days. But I think the celebration of him is quite revealing insofar mm. as there's this desperation to get out what a lot of the media and the broader establishment see as this horrendous little populist blip that took place, which I think was actually very important. You know, it got Brexit over the line. It brought ordinary people into politics. It was um, very lacking in many respects, the whole Boris Johnson project, this kind of diet populism Tory party, um, and of course kind of collapsed on, under the weight of its own ineptitude in many respects. But at the same time, that that celebration of the adults in the room always makes my skin crawl, because I think, what adults are you talking about? Mm. As if the world was fantastic up until about 2015, and yeah. there were no economic or social problems, and everything was... Brilliant. Which it, and if there are a lot of people who do seem to feel like that. What I find interesting is as the week has gone on, um, that kind of early moment of sort of celebration has already given way to, oh, he's just like the rest of them, isn't he? Yeah. This is still the most right-wing government in history. <laughs> so even just keeping Suella Braveman for nakedly political, party political reasons, um, party management reasons, I should say, is, is shown as an example of how the cancer hasn't properly been cut out. So the hysteria isn't going away, even if the quote-unquote adults have taken back over. All again, these, uh, you know, all these territory cabinets filled with conservatives. It's yeah. <laughs> it's Who would have thought? Yeah. Their 80 seat majority, putting people in their cabinet that agree with them. I can't mm. believe it. I mean, what, what cabinet, a Tory cabinet doesn't have Caroline Lucas, you know, I mean. 
God, it's almost like they won an election. <laughs> I mean, what do you make of the, the significance of um, Braverman, as uh, Tom has alluded to? That seems to upset the narrative a little bit, that this is just going to be... Yeah, I mean, one supporter of Rishi Sunak told me, he said, you know, Rishi's getting better at politics, you know, by having Suella, someone not from his natural wing of the party, perhaps mm. the ERG, um, in there. I mean, I, I think that it's a difficult appointment, and that's why it's Keir Starmer led on it, because obviously if you go on the Wednesday and then come back the following Tuesday yeah. and there's an issue about ministerial breach and you're running the Home Office, which has a number of issues, uh, I think that that will be something that Labour can use to attack him. Um, but I, I do think it shows a genuine attempt to try to bring different bits of the party together. And you also see that with uh, David Davies, um, Welsh Secretary, you know, ERG Spartan himself. Mm. So it's perhaps a reflection of the more broader cabinet, the one mm. this trust had, where it was just... I think 30 or so people attending cabinet who either voted for or not declared, and then Michael Ellis as well. Yeah, basically just trust acolytes. Yeah, trust and trust, yeah. Uh, Tom, we can't escape the fact that Rishi Sunak is the first um, Asian origin PM, the first Mm -hmm. Hindu PM. It's been interesting to see some of the reaction to that because... I guess the kind of people who would normally just celebrate these things outright mm. have have struggled to almost come up with a formulation of how to respond to this. Yeah, they've really struggled to digest it, like as you say, because it doesn't really fit. Um, now, you've had the kind of usual suspects, you know, the kind of um, race debate section of the Good Morning Britain Rolodex, you know, kind of leaping forward <laughs> and saying, you know... Not this, any names. This isn't, no. <laughs> legal reasons as much as anything. Um, you know, saying that this, you know, this isn't a win for representation because of the fact that he's still attached to this anti-woke culture warring agenda, Hmm. which is a quite subtle way of saying he doesn't count really, which is quite unpleasant. More broadly, I think it's fair to say there's still this, there's still this uneasiness with it or an attempt to see a kind of racist backlash where there isn't or to interpret some of what he's saying as somewhat problematic, saying that when he said something to the effect of, you know, I owe a lot to this country, reading that as why should, you know, second generation immigrants or people who were born in this country of immigrant background still feel the need to say this when you can imagine any PM of any, you know, heritage saying something like that. So there's been this desperation for it to take on a kind of more racial character in one way or another. One of the things I think is quite good about the way about Rishi's ascension is the fact that um, it hasn't really struck the country as either like a great leap forward Mm. or as um, something which has created loads of division. I think that's actually quite a good thing. I think when you invest that kind of significance to it like a heart like this is a completely new dawn now that this will right the wrongs of history that this will do this and do that you can often set individual politicians up to fail you can end up demonizing any criticism of them because to do so is to criticize you know the representative of minorities and so on and so forth i think it's actually something quite healthy in the fact that as much as people try to kind of put that lens on this it doesn't really work in many respects, it just doesn't digest, and that's why I think a lot of people are struggling with it. In that I sense. Think, James, yeah. It, yeah, I think we see with Trevor Noah the comments today. I don't know if you've mm. seen these, which just, yeah. um, you know, in, in, in name only comedian, you know, pop <laughs> late night show host, um, and he tried to do this whole thing about how there was this racist backlash, and I have seen nothing approaching this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's almost like these fantasy armies of bigots coming out of the woodwork. I mean, who are they? Um, there was one idiot who called into LBC. Uh, is that really a, a backlash? I mean, you can they get... They would have yeah. spent hours trying to find yeah. something. They scream those calls. Various, various, you know, magazine like, you know, comments and things like that. Yeah, you really have exactly. to find the search it, for them. Go out of your way, exactly. Yeah. I think most people, as you say, accept it. You know, if you like the Tories, you'll like him. If you don't like him, they won't. But I mean, and then they'll, they'll just go on Trevor Noah. They then either had a, a sketch of a 
how he wasn't a proper Asian, you know, by mm. one of the, And I just thought it just, <laughs> and it just shows how, I don't know, this warped American culture war lens. Mm. We really shouldn't import it here. It's just, it's just baffling. And I, people were watching this thinking, what on earth? And I think the British Asian experience is very different from the American Asian experience. Yeah. And I, I just, the constant need to see everything through one lens, transatlantic lens is quite damaging, I think. And, um, I think we've avoided a lot of the worst of American culture wars, but um, yeah, it's just a bizarre. The Rishinak is the latest flashpoint in that ongoing mm. saga. And James, are you surprised or not surprised the fact that, you know, the first um, British Asian Prime Minister is a Tory and not from the Labour Party? Because, you know, we hear all the time that Labour is the party of mm. equality, the party of representation. It probably is the party that goes more out of its way to, you know, have kind of diversity schemes and quotas and things like that. Well, I think that the Tories are just ruthless uh, and they don't, I don't think they just have these, the soul searching, you know, this trust wasn't working, got rid of her income for yeah. Rishi Sunak. Um, the more serious point is, of course, is that uh, the Tories, the way in which the safe seat selections worked is that you tended to have ethnic minorities uh, selected in those like Spellthorn, Kwasi Kwarteng, Richmond, of course, probably the safest Tory seat in the country, Rishi Sunak's seat. Um, and so you do have these people set up for good, uh, long lasting cabinet careers. And so although they haven't had a formal quota system, initiatives like the A-list over the years were important in, in in kind of that. So uh, and also inevitably, of course, the Tories tend to win elections. So yeah. uh, if you want to be uh, successful, I think minority in politics often it might be the chance to go to the Tories because they're going to win the election rather than Labour. And and Tom, finally, I mean, Sunak's um, essentially was it was a coronation. Yeah, really. Um, do you think that's going to be a problem coming forward? Because you know he doesn't have the same certainly doesn't have the same mandate as Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. One of the things that seems to have undone Liz Truss was her sort of distance from the people, her unwillingness to explain herself. Do you think that's a problem for Sunak? I, I think it could become a problem. I think at the moment there's a uh, a bit of a sigh of relief. I wouldn't be surprised if the kind of poll support for a general election will start to go down to a certain extent because mm. the that kind of high fever pitch of the trust disintegrations, that sort of... Um, uh, abated to a certain extent. But I think democratically and on principle, we do need a general election. I understand why the Tories will not call one anytime soon. Yeah. Because if you just take one look at the polls, it's still pretty <laughs> terrifying for them. But uh, I know we're a parliamentary system. I know we're not a presidential system. But the same, our politics has been going in that direction. Boris yeah. was a kind of singular figure in many respects. And Sunak, as revealed by some of the media fawning over him in recent days, is a different proposition. And we're also in quite a different era now. So I do think we need to inject some democracy back into the process. I just don't think that's very likely to happen anytime soon. (laughs) You're watching the Spikes podcast. While you're here, you should subscribe to our YouTube channel and click the bell so you never miss a video. But even better, to keep up with all of Spikes content, all of our brilliant articles and essays that we publish every weekday, you should sign up to our newsletter today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spike's content, plus some exclusive commentary. To sign up, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and click Today on Spiked. That's spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and Today on Spiked. Now, back to the Spiked podcast. James, let's move on to talk about Liz Truss. Here we go. Here, yeah, well, your special, your special subject. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, do you want to? I mean, do you want to tell us a bit about the changing subtitle of your book? Because okay, that, you know, yeah. that sort of encapsulates so where ri- we've been over the past <laughs> uh, six or seven weeks. So I've written the first and possibly last ever book on Liz Truss, uh, <laughs> which was about her her ascent through British politics. Uh, the original title was so we kept the title, but the subtitle changed. It was Out of the Blue. The Astonishing Rise of Liz Truss. Uh, as one grandee said to me, 
dryly on the day she got elected. Well, I'm certainly astonished. <laughs> Very cutting. <laughs> then the next stage was uh, the explosive rise of Liz Truss, which is yeah. what Robert Halfham called the libertarian jihadists <laughs> running number 10 when it was very much sort of bang and uh, the mini budget and everything like that. And then the final one, of course, is the one we're going, going with, which is the rise and fall of Liz Truss. Um, and obviously everyone will focus on the fall, but yeah. I think the rise is interesting too in the sense that you have someone here who, you know, spent a dozen years in parliament, uh, 10 years in office, eight as a cabinet minister. And um, the way in which she climbed the greasy pole, I think, is instructive. Mm. So people want to learn what to do in Westminster, get on, you can read that. But also, I think Rishi Sunak should probably get the first copy and what not to do in number 10. So t- tell us a bit about the the rise then, because you're, you're right, she has been a significant figure in mm. politics. A lot of people said, um, don't underestimate her. Maybe, maybe... Don't overestimate <laughs> don't, her. Maybe we shouldn't have overestimated her. But I mean, you know... Yeah. How did she get to where? It's to a really the, good question. Um, and I'd say a key argument, well, again, we go back to, we, st- we spoke about the A-list earlier, you know, it was an mm. issue to get more women in, Tory women in politics. Um, and essentially, uh, she was someone who who was who was put on the fast track, seen as someone bright, you know, energetic, enthusiastic from the beginning. So she's always going to be destined for that. And you look at the way in which um, David Cameron and CCHQ came out for her in 2009 when she had that selection issues in, in, mm. in Norfolk. Um, and so there was that. But I think the more important point is the Brexit civil wars. And you yeah. look at how a whole generation of politicians above her on either side of Remain leave in the Tory party were cut down by that, that internecine struggle. Um, and she was there left standing. I think also luck and importance in terms of the brief she had. Remember, of course, she wasn't involved in COVID. Yeah. Uh, she wasn't involved. In, and all those people who presented COVID press conferences mm. uh, in September when mm. she was all gone, you know, uh, Hancock, uh, Johnson, Sunak in September, of course, were all, you know, fronted those and she wasn't part of it. Patel, you know, she did none of those. And she instead got to be this great Brexit queen going around the globe, signing these trade deals. Uh, the foreign office, she was seen as having a good war in, in Ukraine. So a combination, uh, I think also you need a tremendous sticking power as well. You know, the yeah. energy and uh, skin of a rhino and arguably those things which made her a good survivor and a cabinet minister, you know, didn't make, necessarily make her a great prime minister, which is having perhaps sort of limited ability to empathise, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, that that was going to be my next question. So where did it go wrong? Um, I mean, is there a kind of inside story to that yeah. as well? When did you realise it was all just yeah. coming crashing? <laughs> did you see it before the rest of us? Or uh, I, I think, yeah, I think that um, it was, I mean, the minute budget is the obvious thing. Yeah. Of course, look, look back at the timeline where she comes into office Energy price guarantee first day, mm. the Queen dies the second day. Then we have the suspension of normal politics until the Monday. Uh, and then we have the mini budget on the Friday. And that's when it all went explosive. There was a bit where we were rewriting the book where we thought that, you know, maybe she'll survive as a conventional Tory prime minister for months. Yeah. Mm. Like Theresa May did after 2017, mm-hmm. where you, you're not going to be the radical you want to be, the revolutionary who comes into office. You're not going to be a Thatcher, but you could be a May. Um, and then obviously what really finished her off then was that whips office vote uh, last Wednesday, a week mm. ago. Uh, which was just a shambles. Um, but I would say, yeah, the mini budget and the fallout from that, the U-turn, and that's what really... And I think you talk about prime ministers, you know, Eden had Suez, Chamberlain had appeasement, Munich, and Liz Truss, it'll be mini budget. And how do you think we'll remember Liz Truss, if we do at all? Yeah, let's, let's hope Bri- we do. Briefly, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's very difficult. She talked about her significant achievements and steps number 10. I think she's probably done more to set back free market economics than anyone in Britain for that, the last 30, 30 years. second speech. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the 89 seconds on the steps and uh, the port market speech. Mm. Look, I think... I, I, That's an orator then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think she will be 
seen by future generations as a salutary reminder of the dangers of hubris on coming into office. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. We should stick with um, some of the other shenanigans in Westminster. We've seen the sort of Just Stop Oil activists spraying up various streets, particularly targeting the, the think tanks of 55 Tufton Street, mm. which become a bit nice of a... Nice segue there. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> That retired bouncer from South London with the orange paint and the yeah. <laughs> it's getting weirder, isn't it? I, yeah. I might, you know, it just especially when it was start, suddenly starting to target paintings, and also the more that they kind of get drawn out into the open, the more you kind of get the sense that oh, you really believe this. Mm. And by believe, I don't mean you think climate change is a problem. A lot of people think that, but I mean the kind of apocalyptic narrative. Because at that point, surely anything is justified. I mean, yeah. it's not hard to justify spray painting Fifty Five Tufton Street as. But, you know, bad as that is, that's not terrorism. Mm. But at the same time, you do kind of get this sense of what they've been saying for a very long time, which is everyone's going to die. It doesn't matter if we block an ambulance. It doesn't matter if we risk defacing a great work of art. Mm. It just, I think it just shows the dangers of that kind of apocalyptic mindset. Because if you really hold to that, there's all sorts of things you'd be prepared to do, let alone, you know, just a bit of paint on Tufton Street or somewhere else. But Yeah, James, what have you made of those protests and particularly the, the kind of art protests? You know, they're throwing... Um soup at great works of art uh, saw from the, even from Holland because it's an international thing someone um, gluing themselves to a Vermeer and then throwing soup on themselves I don't understand what the soup metaphor is no. but um, what do you make of the targeting of these great artworks I mean it's it's a way of trying to be fresh and innovative and mm. I mean I remember when I was in my previous job on the Mail on Sunday going along to a lot the early Extinction Rebellion and covering them uh, and you know they were obviously the great they, 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 they would block roads and have these great protest marches as well I think it's a way really should get attention um and they've been effective at that um but as as, as tom says like you know if you're going 55 tufton street you know it's really quite niche inside baseball westminster kind yeah. of stuff yeah so you wonder they're going to blow up the red line next or something like that <laughs> i don't know what, what where, where do you draw the line um but i, I think yeah attention and um, what is interesting of course is you know it's a worldwide phenomenon as well it's yeah. for, for a number of reasons i think it you know obviously there's a lot of it it's a bit more of it in britain in london mm. but um it's it's clearly something all nations have to wrestle with in terms of where do you draw the line between uh, frankly public nuisance and genuine public mm. debate and free expression yeah and tom you're talking about the sort of weirdness of it i mean there's the yeah. wacky side of it but then there's also the darker side i mean you've been looking into some of sort of roger hallam's yeah um diaries or you know prison Speeches. notebooks it's really creepy i mean uh clive martin the formerly advice writer said that like extinction rebellion is going for its helter skelter phase and there's a bit of something to that insofar mm. as it's all getting very dark it's all getting very cold so i'm not talking about tough strip you know pouring shit on tom moore's cutout or whatever it was and setting people's setting their own arms on fire yeah in the protest against private jets and I think it comes down to that thing where, again, if you read what these people say, like Roger Hallam, you'll always hear these um, spokespeople come out and talk about there's going to be societal collapse. There's going to mm. be societal collapse. What they mean by that and what Roger Hallam, the, one of the founders of XR and very involved in Just Stop Oil and these offshoot groups, talks about, it's this really nightmare vision of the world is going to collapse in short order, 
billions will die. There will be murder and rape and all this sort of. So he talks about rape all the time. Like it's really yeah. quite dark. And I think gang rape. All this sort have of your stuff. eyes stubbed out by a cigarette. I remember it's one of really them. graphic. That's almost a direct quote. I think. Yeah. Um, and the reason I say this is because I think you've just got to realise that we're not here talking about people who are just concerned about climate change they're hysterical about climate change and they're quite apocalyptic now i know some people are running around calling them like terrorists and so on and so forth i think that implies a level of physical courage of which they're not actually possessed i think <laughs> broadly speaking they're just there it's a kind of day out in many respects but um the worldview that we're dealing with is yeah. quite bleak it's quite anti-human mm. and the most chilling thing i think at the end of the day about all these groups is that Broadly speaking, the political class and the establishment have some share a lot of these concerns to a certain extent. Mm. They're just this sort of shoutier little brother of environmental politics more broadly, which is very much held by large swathes of the political class. I completely I agree. I, I think that was the sense I got from going and covering these protests with a lot of people. It was like a jolly, you know, they were handing out brownies and stuff like that. And, and that's fine. You know, obviously you can have free expression, but as you say, it's then a minority who have a certain viewpoint of the mm. world, which actually, if you drill down into some of those assumptions, what they mean in terms of, you know, economic, you know, is economic growth is a bad thing. So what the def inflation being, some people should remain in poverty. Um, and, and, I, I, yeah, it's, it's, I think the thing as well is that the political class does, as you say, share a lot of these assumptions. We're going to have net zero. Mm. You know, we're going yeah. to have that. The only debate is over 2050 or 2040. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, this is something where, for better or worse, whatever you think of it, like the, the, the last 20, 25 years has been a genuine cross party consensus on this issue. So I'm really not sure often why you're going after the British government, which has quite a good record on a lot of these things. And so that's why a lot of the hysteria I think we sometimes see about, oh, you know, they're going to rip up all these, you know, there won't be a bonfire because they're not popular with voters and it's not what they're going to do. And it's, I think pick your targets a bit better mm. would be my advice. Yeah, and, and you kind of see that in the way that the police treat them, for instance, the kind of, uh, you know, the way that they are connected to the political class or have the sympathy of the political class because you can't imagine many other protesters <laughs> uh, quite getting away with sitting on the road in that way. Yeah. You can't imagine the policeman coming over you know, to some of those anti-vaxxers or anti-lockdown protests and say, would you like a cup of tea? Yeah. I and love that judge who said, um, <laughs> can I just say that your cause is correct and it's lovely being able to deal with people like you. It's not <laughs> the usual sort of people I deal with. And it just underlines that point. It's a very, it's a, it's a rebellion um, that is very in key with what the establishment sort of already thinks. Hmm. I think what they do, the service that they do is that they demonstrate that whilst politicians try to suggest that you can kind of pursue these sort of net zero fantasies without there being any cost, uh, these groups, because they're so out there, demonstrate, no, what they're talking about is degrowth. No, what yeah. they're talking about is you not being able to fly, to own a car, to do what you want. Hallam talks openly about it being a lockdown-style scenario in certain mm. respects. And in that sense, I think they're doing us a service. They're showing that these things have a really profound cost because of the fact that cheap, reliable energy is kind of the bedrock of why we've got good living standards. And if we throw that out you know we're going to end up in a we're seeing the downsides now this winter as well when exactly. energy prices go up if environmentalism in its current form survives this winter yeah. I don't know what <laughs> we can do about it really thank you for listening to the Spike podcast we're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website which is spiked-online.com see you next time